We will look together at Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 10 through verse 15. The mob in the city of Thessalonica that was directed against Paul and his team, they went to the house of Jason, and it was there that they thought that they were going to find those who were responsible for bringing this new message of this new king that was being proclaimed. The unbelieving Jews who led the mob were determined to expel the missionaries and scatter the new church. Unable to find Paul, the the city officials demanded that Jason and the other believers that were with him uh, give a pledge. Basically, this was a guarantee that they would be responsible to ensure that Paul and his team actually leave the city. They themselves, that is Jason and those that were with him, they would be punished because of this pledge if Paul and his team remained. So Jason was then released along with the others, and we find ourselves at verse 10 in chapter 17. Allow me to start reading there. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, And Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. This is God's word. We observe, first of all, in this text, in this passage, uh, a willingness to consider. A willingness to consider. In an effort to meet the pledge that had been given in Thessalonica, and to do so without causing a disturbance, the Christians there immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. We read that in verse 10. A component of this pledge that was taken by Jason and the others uh, who were brought before the city authorities back in Thessalonica was that they agreed that Paul would not return to the city. He was essentially put on this legal permanent ban from ever going back. And this is probably what Paul refers to in his letter to the uh, Thessalonian church. And we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18, these words, We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. So it seems that Paul views the ban that was placed against him as a way in which the adversary prevented him from returning to personally minister to the believers in Thessalonica. As they left the city by night, Paul and Silas uh, and the others that were with them, they they veered off the main Roman road, the Ignatian Way, and they instead took a, a side road southwest from Thessalonica, and they traveled about 45 miles to the city of Berea. And though the city was off the beaten path, it was the second most important city in Macedonia. Now, it might not have been Paul's intention to end up in Berea, but it was the Lord's intention. 
The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his path. And that is where God directed Paul. Though it was viewed in the ancient world as, as cowardly, as a cowardly act to flee in the night, Paul and Silas were anything but cowards. And this is evidenced by the fact that they headed straight to the synagogue once they got to Berea. Why does that demonstrate bravery? Well, it was preaching in the synagogue previously that had brought such hatred down upon them from the unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica. But preaching in the local synagogue also brought about the beginnings of a church in that former city. For it was from the synagogue that the first converts were drawn. In spite of the, the beating that Paul and Silas received at Philippi uh, for casting a demon out of a girl in the name of Jesus, in spite of having to flee in the night because of the jealousy of the unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica, Paul still proceeded to proclaim the good news that Jesus is the Messiah to the Jews in Berea. In all likelihood, Paul and Silas, they attended the synagogue during a regular Sabbath day gathering, but Paul did not have to wait another week this time for them to meet again. For we read in verse 11 that the Jews in Berea examined the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So interested and intrigued by what Paul was saying concerning Jesus of Nazareth and the Old Testament prophecies, he fulfilled to identify him as the Messiah. So interested in this, the Berean Jews, they were compelled to figure out whether the things that Paul was claiming were in fact true. So, so what was the reason? What was the reason for such openness to Paul's claims to the Bereans? Well, I ask this in light of the fact that he had just encountered such hardness of heart back in the synagogue in Thessalonica. We read in verse 11 that the Bereans, they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. In other words, they were open-minded to what Paul shared. They just had a different approach altogether. They were not arrogantly opposed to considering his claims. And an open mind is a sign of maturity. An open mind is an indicator of wisdom. You should never be afraid to consider different viewpoints or interpretations. Now, an open mind does not mean that you accept any and every viewpoint or interpretation. It does mean that you listen. It means that you don't immediately go on the attack just because you do not agree with what you hear. The, the phrase open-minded, an open-minded person, it's often used in our day and time to refer to, to somebody that accepts everything without question. Every lifestyle is okay. Every perspective is right. Every belief system is acceptable. But if that is open-mindedness, then to have an open mind is really not to think at all. That would be better described as, as having an empty mind. Think about it. There has to be absolutes. There have to be right and wrong answers. There are a multitude of wrong answers but there can only be one right answer. 
if there are no absolutes, then, then 2 plus 2 does not have to equal 4. It could equal anything you want it to equal. If there are no absolutes, then what actually happened in history does not matter. We could interpret history any, any old way we wanted to. We could ignore the context, we could ignore the culture, we could ignore the time period. And of course, we see these ideas gaining traction in our society today, in our schools today, rewriting history, basically, at least reinterpreting it. And the thing is, historical facts, they're always interpreted by someone. None of us was there. Facts are always interpreted, and that's what historians do. They, they interpret history. They offer their interpretations to the rest of us. But that does not mean that history changes, right? History doesn't change. What happened, happened. There are interpretations that are closer to right than to wrong. And that's what we're looking for when it comes to studying something like history. Or we have a math teacher who's told not to hurt any, any of the student's feelings. And so a student can answer a math problem any way they want. That's happening. I know it sounds absurd. So even if they get the problem wrong, they still get a pass. Well, why is that? Because our society has gotten to this point where the, the feelings of the child is more important than, than accuracy. Their feelings are more important than reality, which we know is an absurd notion. It sounds absurd for me to say it out loud, but it's happening. Such a approach as that does not prepare a young person for real life. It does set them up to, to fail in the real world and to feel like a victim when they do so. I mean, you would never dream of, of telling someone that, that was building a rocket. You would never dream of telling them, it doesn't really matter if you get the calculations right or wrong. Lives are at risk when you launch something into space. It does matter whether you get the calculations right or wrong. Facts do matter. If everything's acceptable, if there's no right or wrong, then behavior is just a, it's just a matter of opinion. That's what it carries over into. There's no right behavior, there's no wrong behavior. Morality is, is fluid and open to change. Now, people don't mind taking this approach when it comes to, to matters of sexuality. You know, the mantra now is, is, seems to be, do whatever you want with whomever you want. There's no right or wrong when it comes to, to who you have sex with or, or where you have sex with them. And they would say that the, the biblical ethic, the biblical ethic that says sex is only for the context of marriage between one man and one woman, they would say that's outdated, that that's irrelevant. But the same people that would say that would probably, hopefully, still say that there are moral boundaries when it comes to something like stealing or murder. Because if something was stolen from them, they'd probably be upset about it. If someone they love is murdered, they would probably still want justice. And so it's picking and choosing your absolutes when it comes to morality. Morality is not fluid. It's not fluid in matters of sexuality. 
It's not fluid in matters of justice. Morality is stable and unchanging because morality finds its source in an absolutely moral God. And he is stable and unchanging. We can't pick and choose when it comes to what is right and wrong. Some things are simply unchanging. They do not sway. They do not shift. What was wrong yesterday is still wrong today. What is true today will still be true tomorrow. So an open mind, an open mind does not mean a passive mind. An open mind does not mean that you're able to hold two opposing, contradictory thoughts together in your brain. Your brain doesn't work like that. It will rebel eventually. An open mind does not mean that you accept any and all behavior. An open mind or a noble mind as the Bereans possessed is a mind, is a, is a mind that is willing to consider. It's willing to listen. So in a word, what I'm driving at, the Bereans were teachable. They were teachable. You have nothing to fear from hearing other viewpoints. You have nothing to fear by listening to someone that you disagree with. There is, a, there is a difference between doctrine and indoctrination. I want you to hear this. Because often Christians confuse the two. Doctrine and indoctrination. Doctrine refers to conveying biblical truth. Doctrine is what the Bible teaches. Indoctrination is tyrannical instruction. Indoctrination demands uncritical acceptance. Paul taught doctrine. He did not indoctrinate. Jesus taught doctrine. He did not indoctrinate. The difference is, is that doctrine is never forced. The receiver is free to decide what they will do with the information. And so when it comes to indoctrination, the receiver is expected to accept the information without question. There's no choice given. Paul did not demand acceptance of his teachings from the Bereans. He let them decide, as we shall see. God does not demand acceptance of truth from you and me. God allows us to decide what we will do with his word. God does not want people who feel forced to love him. God does not want people who feel forced or are made to love truth. He desires people who choose to love him and who choose truth. Unfortunately, there are, there are pastors and teachers who indoctrinate rather than instruct in biblical truth. The leadership demands unquestioning acceptance of all of its directives. You know, we, we know institution churches like that. The directives, they might be biblical or they might not be, but giving directives in the first place is, is tyrannical and it's outside of the, of the Bible's way of conveying truth. So if any organization or any man ever demands that you accept something as true and binding without question, then be very leery. Be very leery. 
Jesus makes strong demands upon his followers. If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. Strong demand. Jesus calls for you to lose your very life and for your self-interest to be swallowed up in his interest. But Jesus never forces anyone to follow him. He never demands that you follow him without thinking through whether you really want to do that or not. Yeah, it's a strong, a strong demand. It's a strong cost that you're, be, you're being asked to make. But he gives you a choice. Luke records two parables of Jesus in Luke chapter 14. Both of these parables addressing what it means to count the cost of following Jesus. And the first, Jesus says that it's necessary for a builder to calculate the cost before he begins to build. Make sure that he has enough money to finish the project. Make sure that everything is in place as far as the plans are concerned. We understand that. Calculate the cost before you start to build. And the second parable right behind it, Jesus says that a king considers whether or not his army is able to defeat the opposing army that is coming to meet him. Consider, do you have enough troops? Do you have a good strategy? If not, maybe don't go to battle in the first place. Consider whether or not the army is capable. And so in other words, Jesus is saying the calculating and the considering, they're left up to you. You weigh Jesus' words and then you decide what you will do with them. It's your choice. Gather the facts. Weigh the matter. matter. Don't, don't make a hasty, uninformed decision. Then, if you decide that following Jesus to find your life is better than not following Jesus and losing your life, follow him. Follow him. This is what the Bereans did with Paul's words. They were noble-minded. They were willing to consider carefully what was being said to them. They had a willingness to hear. And then they tested what they heard. They tested what they heard. We read in verse 11 of how the Bereans responded to this new message they were hearing. It says they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Paul was doing what he always did in the local synagogues. He was, as we saw back in Thessalonica, back in verse 2, he was reasoning with them from the Old Testament scriptures. As a Christian, when it comes to listening well, you need to keep two things in mind. Two things in mind when it comes to listening well. You need to have an open mind, first of all. We just considered the importance of being teachable. You do not allow yourself to be told what to think without questioning it. You consider carefully what you hear. And that begins with listening well. Be more noble-minded than those who immediately reject anything that does not line up with what they believe. And the next thing you need to do to have a teachable heart is to examine everything in light of Scripture. Examine everything in light of Scripture. Does it matter if I say it? Does it matter if the, the preacher on the internet says it? The guy you hear on the radio says it? 
your friend at work says it. Examine everything in light of Scripture. Paul opened up the Word of God to the Bereans. They were already familiar with the Old Testament. They listened to it read every Sabbath, every Saturday. They studied God's Word, and they had already allowed God's Word to shape their belief systems and their behavior. They took the Scriptures very seriously, as should we. And so when Paul came to them with teaching from the Bible, even though it was new and different to their ears, it says they received it with great eagerness. Paul's interpretation of the Old Testament was that it pointed toward Jesus of Nazareth as the promised Messiah. This was new. This was different. But the Bereans did not outright reject such an interpretation. They actually embraced it. With eagerness, they reasoned to themselves, if this is a teaching from God's word, we should seriously consider it. Again, you have nothing to fear from listening to somebody. I want to pause a moment and ask you to consider if this is your approach to God's Word. When you, when you read it, when you read God's Word, do you receive it with great eagerness? When you hear God's Word preached, do you receive it with great eagerness? I'm not understanding whether you, I mean, I'm not asking whether you, whether you understand immediately what you hear. I'm not asking if you agree with the interpretation of that passage when you initially hear it. Those are important considerations, but they are not the very first response that we should have toward the Bible. The first response, as we see with the Bereans, is that they simply received teaching from God's Word with great eagerness. They were excited that the Word was being expounded to them. They received God's word like David did. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation night and day. That's Psalm 119.97. They realized that it was by receiving God's word that they would be led on the path of life. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Psalm 119.1. The Bereans, they knew that in order to experience joy, which we all long to experience, that they must first hear God's word. And that would lead to an understanding of God's word. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Psalm 119.24. So I'm not dealing at the moment with how you interpret what you hear. That's coming. What I'm driving at right now is, is to consider whether or not you have an attitude of eagerness toward God's word. That's crucial. We have to approach the Word of God with the expectation that it will lead us into truth and into wisdom and into life. We need to approach God's Word with a hunger and a thirst. We long for the Lord through His Word to speak into our lives, to nourish us, to strengthen us. And one of the primary ways that God speaks into our lives is through His Word. When you're hungry, you go with that food on your plate like it's about to crawl off. Are you coming to God's word famished, impoverished, longing? If you want God to speak, approach the Bible with eagerness as to what the Lord wants to show you today.
like Paul did in Thessalonica, he was, verse 3, back in verse 3 of chapter 17, he was explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. So as he was doing that same thing in Berea, what was the response of the Jews there, this new city? Well, it says they examined the scriptures to see whether these things were so. Verse 11. There it is. There is your standard of measurement. There is your grid for determining what is true and what is false. The scriptures. They listened eagerly to Paul, and then they opened the word, or they unrolled the scroll, as it would have been the case. And they compared what Paul said to what the Bible says. Keep in mind, Paul was speaking about the word of God. He, he was pulling out Old Testament prophecies that referred to the Messiah. He was explaining how they all tied together to point to Jesus of Nazareth. This was a new interpretation. The Bereans, they, they already possessed the scriptures. They had that. They were just being shown something they did not realize was contained within the scriptures. It was a new teaching to their ears. And they did not reject it outright. They were humble. They did what we should all do. They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So we need to practice this on two levels. First of all, we need to apply this principle whenever we hear a new interpretation of Scripture. I don't mean something new altogether. I mean something new to you. Because there's no new truth. Truth is ancient. Truth is, in fact, eternal. Jesus said about God's Word, Your Word is truth. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. So if it is new, it's not true. If it is true, it's not new. So we're not talking about Paul presenting new truth in the sense that he made something up about what God's Word means. It was an eternal truth that Paul was presenting. It was new in the sense that it was new to the ears of the Jews in Berea. You will hear and read interpretations of the Bible that will be new to you. You will hear some of those from me. You will hear new things from the Word uh, from other preachers and teachers. Maybe at other churches, maybe on the internet, maybe on the radio. That's not a bad thing. It's only dangerous if you accept every interpretation without questioning, without critical review, as far as what you're hearing. You and I, we should always do what the Bereans did with teachings that are based on God's Word. Go back to the Scriptures. Go back to them for yourself. Read the passage. Read other passages that are related to it. Study to either confirm it or to refute it. Pray for understanding. One role of the Holy Spirit is to give you understanding of the Bible. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. That's John 14, 26. Jesus also said, the Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. It's John 16, 13. God wants you to know the truth because it is that truth 
that will set you free. It is the truth that you believe and obey that leads you into eternal life. It is the truth that renews your mind and encourages your heart and gives you real hope. God wants you to know the truth. He does. And the way that you come to understand God's word more deeply is by examining what you hear from God's word in light of God's word with the help of God's spirit. So that's one level of applying the principle of examining everything in the light of scripture. But the second level has to do with life in general. We, we are all confronted on a daily basis with different opinions and viewpoints and interpretations and, and so-called facts. We're bombarded like never before in history by social media, by opinions. We can find out somebody's opinion in India on a subject. That's new in world history. Let's go to Twitter. We're bombarded by old-fashioned media. We're bombarded by messaging and, and TV and in movies. We're hit by opinions from friends and family and coworkers. Even what is taught in, in higher institutions of learning, that stuff trickles down into the thought patterns of, of the ordinary man and woman on the street. In other words, we are always having to discern what is true and what is not. You can't escape that. That's just life. The grid for determining truth is the Word of God. The Bible is the key to understanding life. It's the key to understanding what's going on around you. It is the filter that goes into your ear to determine if what you hear is true or false. Scripture is the glasses that you put on to bring the blurriness into focus. Scripture is the, is the grid that you lay over your experiences to discover how God has been at work. The Bible, it's, it's the straight stick that you place beside the crooked one to show you just how crooked that other stick is. The teaching of Scripture is reality according to God. And God's appraisal is all that matters because He created reality in the first place. You need to know more than just a few scattered verses. Individual verses and passages that you memorize, they are certainly helpful. But you need to know how those verses fit into the Bible as a whole. The Bible is 66 books that make up one big book. It is a cohesive, understandable unit. I say this a lot, but you need to know the storyline of the Bible. The beginning, and the middle, and the end. You need to know the, the chronology of the story. What time period that everything fits into. Who came first? Moses or Isaiah? Does it matter? Yes, it does matter. And you need to find out why. You need to understand that the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament together, is one big drama that can be broken down into four acts. Creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. In fact, that's the layout of the gospel message. 
creation, fall, redemption, recreation. Paul was not telling the Bereans scripture they did not know already. They had this framework in place of the Old Testament scriptures in their brains already. They were students of the Bible, of the Old Testament. Paul was showing them how interpreting the Bible with Jesus Christ as the key is the way to understanding the Bible. Jesus is that key. And he's also the key to understanding reality around you. The Bible reveals Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the central message of the scriptures. And understanding the Bible with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, to whom the Bible points, gives you an accurate understanding of reality. It starts here, but it extrapolates out. Hearing the Bible expounded on Sunday morning, it's not enough. Reading the Bible occasionally when, when you need a little shot of, of inspiration, it's not enough. Relying on the preacher or the internet or the radio or whatever to tell you what the Bible says, it's not enough. You need to know the Bible. You need to know the Bible. Then you will be equipped to hear and see as God hears and sees. The Bible gives you his ears and his eyes. You will see reality as God has established reality to be. And you'll be able to discern truth from falsehood, morality from immorality. You will know whether these things are so. The last thing that we observe here in this passage is how we need to cooperate with reality. Cooperate with the reality that the Bible reveals to us. Paul gave the, the attendees of the synagogue in Berea all that they needed. He gave them Jesus Christ. And he did so by pointing in the scriptures to the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As a result, verse 12, many of them, that is the Jews, believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. In other words, a church in Berea was born. Anytime that you hear truth and confirm it as true according to God's word, you will walk in greater spiritual freedom. Seeing the world around you filtered through the scriptures allows you to see things as they really are. A biblical worldview, it, it frees your mind up to think accurately. If you know the truth and then you act on the truth, then you're going to progress spiritually. And the adversary does not like this. The kingdom of darkness that's opposed to Paul and his team in Thessalonica and, and shows that opposition by, by rousing up this mob, that same kingdom also acted against the new believers in Berea. Look at verse 13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. It's the same spirit. It's the same dark resistance. Satan agitates against the truth. 
the enemy of your soul does not mind if you are living blindly, interpreting reality by your circumstances instead of by truth. Satan doesn't mind that. He doesn't mind if you read the Bible even, so long as your Bible reading does not lead you into closer intimacy with Jesus. Is that possible? Well, of course. The Bible reading of the Pharisees, their interpretation of Scripture caused them to call Jesus himself a liar and demon-possessed. They knew the Bible. They read the Bible. If the Scriptures are not leading you toward Jesus, then they're leading you away from him. And that's a sobering thought. The, the forces of darkness do not sit up at attention when people simply read the Bible and don't walk away having been changed by God's Word. But they do sit up at attention when people like the Bereans suddenly believe from the Scripture that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. That does get their attention. And the, the study of the Scriptures by the Bereans, it revealed what, what is there for everyone What's there for us? And that is that Jesus, Jesus Christ, lived the life that you could never live, but that you should have lived. And Jesus Christ died the death that, that you should have died. And Jesus Christ rose from the dead to offer you a right standing before God. It's right there. And that's what Paul was showing the Bereans in the Word of God. The resurrection offering you a right standing before God, forgiven of your sins. The power of sin over you broken. Hell's claim on your life abolished. The kingdom of darkness cannot change your status as a blood-bought child of God. But it can sure make your life uncomfortable. So fearing for Paul's safety, it says, the brethren sent Paul out as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. That's verse 14. It was Paul who was targeted. He was the one who was the most well-known. He was the one who was the most recognizable. And Silas and Timothy, they remained in Berea to continue to teach and to encourage the young church. Paul went on to Athens with the expectation that his companions would soon follow. This is what I want you to hear. Growing spiritually, spiritual growth, that is growing in greater likeness to Jesus, does not happen accidentally. It requires your cooperation. Now, now your salvation... If you were saved, your salvation was not a process. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life, then that happened the moment that you placed your faith in him. That happened quite apart from anything you did, have done, or will do. It's because of what Jesus has done. But the extent to which you will advance spiritually, that is living a life that is increasingly pleasing to God, that depends upon your cooperation. 
one of the main avenues of spiritual growth is through your relationship with the Scriptures. Approach your reading and your listening with an open mind. We all, we all know Christians who are so stuck in their view of certain passages that it affects their relationships with other Christians. Your understanding and application of God's Word should always result in people seeing more of Jesus in you, not less. And so be open to God challenging your thinking, challenging your thinking through His Word. Approach the Bible with great eagerness. Expect that the Word will do what God promises in His Word that it will do. That it will be a, a living and active instrument through which the Holy Spirit will transform your life as you believe and obey. Read the Bible as if you would die without it. Sit down before it as a starving man sits down to a feast. Great eagerness. And examine the scriptures daily. Daily. Make your Bible study a regular habit, a daily habit. The examination of the scripture, it brought many Bereans to belief in Jesus. But you don't stop there. As, as a Christian, you have the, the spiritual capability of understanding God's word as never before because you have the very author himself, the Holy Spirit, dwelling within you. It's more than the Bereans had before they believed. So may it become, may it become instinctual that everything you hear is automatically filtered through what you know about truth as revealed in God's Word. And finally, make sure that your understanding of God's Word brings you closer to Jesus. Make sure that your understanding of God's Word, your interpretation, that it illuminates Jesus in your life. Jesus Christ is the one to whom all the Scriptures point. He is the proof of the truth that's contained in these pages. And so, if Jesus lives in you, and you have trusted in Him, then He is the proof in your life that you have understood, and that you have received God's Word, and that you're living it out. What should knowing the Bible and examining the Scriptures closely do? should make people see more of Jesus in you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word is not just a book that has some helpful instructions, that has a little wisdom that can lead us on the right path. Lord, we, we thank you that your word is living and active and that it reveals Jesus Christ and that it can through the power of the Spirit, change our lives in unimaginable ways. Help us to be like the Bereans. Help us to come to your word with great eagerness. Help us to understand what we read. And help us, Lord, to obey what we read. And then experience the freedom that your life brings to us. 
May people see more of Jesus in us. May he be glorified in our lives. May we decrease as he increases. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.